we, all of us, as I think about bringing this Awaken series to a close and this exercise that we've been doing, discussion we've been having about contemplative prayer. And by contemplative prayer, uh, there are a hundred different ways to parse this, words to use, but by contemplative prayer, I'm talking about that practice that includes what we have typically called prayer. And I know these words have different definitions for everyone, but typically, in the most simplistic of terms, prayer for many people perennially has been this idea of talking to God. Whereas meditation for many of us is the idea of listening to God. And that may be oversimplified for some, and you may not need multiple words for this. But when, we, when I'm saying contemplative prayer, I'm trying to just um, give a nod to that understanding that many people have and say that in contemplative prayer, we're talking about this mix of listening and talking. For me, the talking aspect of contemplative prayer ran out a long time ago. It ran out a long time ago because I was raised in an extreme environment where our talking mattered too much, personally. Our talking to God was almost dictation. We told God what to do. We, we held God to God's word. We went in confidently and reminded God of things that God might have forgotten. We gave God information. We cajoled God. We influenced God perhaps in ways that I personally cease to resonate with. This is my story. The listening side of prayer also seemed daunting to me because I also had been around an extreme form, a caricatured form of people always hearing from God. You couldn't even have a conversation. You couldn't certainly disagree with someone because all they would do is just trump you and say, well, God told me. Anytime you're in a conversation with somebody and it's going pretty well and they pull out the trump card of God, it just shuts the whole thing down. You just, I, I finally learned to say, well, there's that. I guess I don't have anything more to add. If the God of the heavens and the earth told you... Um, so extreme forms of that drove me to a place that even the listening um, was not helpful. Little by little, as most spiritual journeys do, I've come back from those extremes, those excesses from one side to the other and begun to find a balance. And for me, that's contemplative prayer. I do believe God speaks. I'm not even presumptuous enough to impose God's love language and activity with me, conversational activity with me on you. I don't even feel a need to judge anymore when I hear other people say uh, things about how God speaks to them. Who am I to judge? Who are we to judge one another? Who are we to look at another person's journey and come in so flippantly and just callously and think that they've had 53 years of life and in my five-minute interaction with them, I might have something to impose upon their heart and soul, some judgment to make about them. Sometimes I barely know myself well enough, much less the heart of another person. But I do have a sense that, as Mother Teresa said, prayer actually is this union of two listening hearts. And I do believe, as Frederick Beekner said, that life 
life provides God an alphabet. And our feelings, our emotions, the external landscape, the weather, the environment, the circumstances within and without us, they provide God a multi-letter alphabet by which to manipulate those letters and form words of meaning and words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs. I do believe that God speaks to us. I also believe, and I'll, I'll never forget when I was first, when this really strongly, forcefully hit me that the kingdom of heaven is within and this idea of upward cast, upward vision, this idea of looking at God as the other and outside of us. I remember when that almost revelation style hit me. I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen called The Prodigal Son, Return of the Prodigal. And Nouwen, who was a Catholic priest, uh, later his biographers revealed what all of us knew by reading his writing, that he was a Catholic priest who struggled his whole life to accept his sexual uh, reality, his sexual um, identity and orientation. And one writer said it well of Henry, and if you've read Henry, you know this to be true. Henry wrote 43 books about the love of God that he could never live, and he lived a book with his life that he could never write. And that's not all on Henry. That's on the church because we haven't provided a safe place for these things. Thank God the church is growing. But in Henry's torment with his own, his own internal struggle, Henry never made peace with his own sexuality. And on one particular occasion, midlife, he had broken down in terrible psychological disrepair. He made his way, matriculated to Toronto, Canada, and he lived at a place called La Arc, daybreak community with adults who have severe physical and mental brain challenges. And he became a caregiver there during this time of broken depression for himself, just to get himself outside of his life and take care of another. You can read a book about that experience called Adam. Adam was the man, incredibly debilitated, physically, mentally broken man that Henry Nouwen took care of. And the book Adam is a profound reading. While he was there, Henry said, struggling the most with himself, broken, forlorn, despairing. One night he lay on the ground. Some of you have heard me tell this before, but it was revelatory for me. He lay on the ground and he said, I cried out to God, I want to come home. And he said as he lay there and that call just gutturally kept coming out of him, I want to come home. He said it was though the room opened, the sky opened, and there was a picture and it was obviously the father in the prodigal story. And the father was standing in front of a little cottage. And as I looked at the cottage, it began to take a cardiac shape and it began to pulsate. And he said, my God, I realized that the cottage that God stood in front of with door and arms open was my own heart. And he said, he looked at me and smiled and said, come home, Henry. Come home to your own heart. Henry said, I screamed, I cannot 
live there. I've been running from that heart since my earliest days of adolescent, even prepubescent awareness. I've been running from that heart. And he said the father smiled at me, held his hands out, and said, Henry, I'm God and I live here. If God can find your heart a good home, you can too. And I begin to hear differently, the kingdom of God is among you and in you. I begin to recognize that a Ptolemaic universe and a Copernican universe, a three-dimensional world so pales in comparison to a God who is beyond space and time, I begin to realize that the heavens really are within us and the deepest journey is the journey into your own soul. And while I have little control over the outer landscape of my life, over weather patterns and stock exchange numbers, I do have a great deal of say over my internal landscape. And I'm learning through contemplative prayer this art of listening and talking, this art of two conversant hearts listening, mine and the divine. I'm actually learning that you can employ the outside stuff to yield transformation on the inside. The stuff that's happening outside that is so outside of our control, there is a, when the scripture says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe, that no longer is an external tower that I'm trying to get to. That is a journey as close as my own soul. This is the tower. This is the dwelling place. This is the temple. And I can actually shut out all of that which is outside and I can actually take those things through contemplative prayer down inside and begin to experience uh, a watching, a listening, a yielding, an awakening, a consciousness, a connection to my higher true self, that image of God that's embedded down in me. Joseph Campbell, whose book, The Hero Wears a Thousand Face, who cast a beautifully pluralistic, redemptive view of religion for many of us. Campbell, who really found his fame with many in pop culture through his PBS series on myth. Um, Campbell said what all religious myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness. You've been thinking one way and you now have to think a different way. You want a scripture for that from the Christian Bible? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's all kinds of scriptures that we have within our text that speak to this. Consciousness is transformed, Campbell says, in the hero's journey. This is a part of mythology. There's always a hero or a heroine. Transformation occurs... Consciousness is transformed, rather, by trials or by the illuminating revelations that come from them. Trials and revelation, he said, are what it's all about. And life happens. Life brings us trials. Life brings its vicissitudes. And these things provide us material to take down into the crucible of our soul. Down deep into the crucible of our soul where new birth. Some call it salvation. Some call it redemption. Jesus called it being born again. This crucible of transformation inside of me, 
I take all of the stuff from my week, all of the stuff raging around me, and I take it down into that crucible. And the catalyzing elements that really bring this to an art form are my own feelings, the thoughts that assuage me. Harsh thoughts, beautiful thoughts, condemning thoughts, peaceful thoughts. I want to read something again, just a little part of what I read before we began meditation this morning for those that were here. The answer, Tichnot Han says, to anger or sadness or other negative states is not to suppress or deny them, but to embrace, embrace them with mindfulness like a mother with a baby. And I would say within a Christian paradigm, like Jesus with what we would call a sinner. You remember the way Jesus always engaged sinners? The gentleness, no harshness, the unfurrowed brow, the tenderness. The religious setting where the woman is stripped to her waist and she's drugged out of a bedroom, caught in the act of adultery. That religious setting where severity, harshness, narrowness of heart and mind are raining down on her, and Jesus tenderly, Bob just writes in the sand. That's, that tenderness, that looking at a woman who's been married five times and is living with a man, the Samaritan woman, who cannot imagine that a male, even another Samaritan would be good to her, much less a male, much less a Jewish male, much less a prophetic, messianic, rabbinical figure, and Jesus engages her there. I mean, what thoughts are running through her mind as a man is approaching the well? She has purposefully come to this place with all of her own shame, all of her own guilt, consternation, and brokenness, and here comes a man. And how does Jesus approach that cacophony of feelings and condemning voices inside of her? He walks up to her, and he says, could you spare a cup of water? Gentleness of soul. He doesn't even go to her. Oh, the gift of this. <clears throat> Steve, he doesn't even go in the canvassing to her and say, what can I do for you? He goes to the one most needy and says, you could do something for me. <laughs> it's that compassion that we bring to ourself. Suppressing feelings in meditation as in daily life is like blocking a stream with sticks and mud. Denying them, blocking them, telling myself I shouldn't have these emotions and thoughts. These thoughts eventually will gather enough pressure to break through the dams we construct, even the religious ones. And as I say often, they will come out sideways in your life, generally with those that you love the dearest. Better that these thoughts and feelings find their way out in the safe environment of prayer than in other situations where we may be forced to act on them in thoughtless ways. Guilt, doubt, anger, despair. I felt two of those four in our time of prayer this morning. Other forms of self-judgment are common visitors in meditation practice. So are our convictions. This is so, so good. Not only are these bad feelings, but so are our convictions, biases, and beliefs. 
But the purpose of meditation is not to reinforce our feelings or our convictions. The purpose of meditation is to step boldly into reality just as it is in the here and now. Therefore, it's helpful to sweep the mind clean of belief systems. Strong opinions can be signs of our passion and intelligence. When I went to Hoffman in November, this transformative experience that is still impacting me daily, going into that system, which was the most powerful week of spiritual transformation I've ever experienced, and I can say that months later now, it, it's more true every day, I was shocked when they told me to please not bring my religious practices, to please to commit. I was to commit to a week without reading religious literature, without reading the Bible. They even asked me to commit a week to not praying. The self-righteous part of me rose up and said, who do they think they are? And yet, that week of not praying was the most prayerful week I think I've ever had, and they knew that. That week of not reading, that week of not dissecting literature for some revelation was the most enlightening week I've had in a long time. Strong opinions can be signs of our passion and intelligence, but sometimes strong opinions spring from that part of ourselves that wants to be right and that holds on tightly to familiar explanations. The ego wants to be a Republican or a Democrat, an American or a European, an Arab or a Jew. It wants to judge things as right and wrong. It wants to be for something or against something. And in the case of religious practice, it wants to be spiritual. It wants to be transformed. It does not want to delve more deeply into the full picture of reality. Thus, an opinion about the world can become a foe to mindfulness and prayer. One warning about meditation, do not use it as yet another way to judge yourself. Meditation can be difficult. While it hones some of our better qualities, it also holds up a mirror to some of our worst. This is one of the reasons we do it, to see ourselves clearly, to love ourselves, warts and all, to crack through the hard crust of the personality until the gem of the self is revealed. Let your resolve to meditate spring from your longing to break open into life, not from enmity towards yourself. Let go of the burden of self-judgment by returning. Quit trying to be transformed because you're so bad. Transformation will grow out of self-love and the recognition and the thankfulness for the beauty and the gift that you already are. Let go of the burden of self-judgment by returning over and over to your most basic self just as you are with an attitude of forgiveness and as you do this for yourself, soon you will find yourself forgiving others and forgiving the world itself. You go inward and you begin to find this higher self, this gift of God that we call the observer, the witness. And the more alive the witness and the spiritual self, the higher self, is made in times of meditation, the more alive and strong and capable that higher self will be outside of meditation, in the everydayness of life. So many of us live so far from our inner self, 
So many of us live in a mad mix and tangle of our adult child. Our lives, our lives are not calendars where the pages are torn off and thrown away, but every day of our life is like the concentric, still living ring of a tree. Those things are inside of us, and some of us, some of us still are guided by our eight-year-old. We're stuck in our 14-year-old. Our lives are a mad mix, a raging mix every day. I realize finally that I have an intellectual self that has been a hiding place for me. Going inward, I have found that there's a higher self that does not intellectualize everything and does not experience the fullness of God at its height through mathematics and science and empiricism. I thought my intellectual self was my spiritual self, but my intellectual self was not my spiritual self. It was a part of me that sought desperately to control things because I was so afraid to ride this all the way down to the depths of my soul and make peace with who I am, Tim. Intellectual selves and adult children raging. Contemplative prayer is the place where you can find the observer where you can find the spiritual self, the spiritual self that is smart enough and wise enough and breathed into the, by the Holy Spirit well enough that it will wait for you. It will throw sticks and stones and rocks at you trying to get you to listen, but it will never kick down the door of your life. It will always deflect to the raging child. It will always deflect. It will always defer to the intellectual self because the spiritual self knows as Jesus knows transformation never comes through force it will wait on you <laughs> but in contemplative prayer you begin to find that observer that breath of God that can pull back and see and as you exercise this part of you this part of you begins to follow you into the real places of life and you quit living like this How many of you know what I mean? We live like this. As you find your spiritual self, as you find your true self, that part that's deeper than the ego, that part that's richer than the wounded child, the screaming child, as you find the spiritual self, you find out that intellectual selves and adult children, they react. But the spiritual self, the image of God in you, responds. And mindfulness begins to move from simply that space where I spend 10 to 24 minutes a morning thoughtfully, reflectively being compassionate and learning and listening. Mindfulness begins to seep out of that religious space into the everydayness of life. And when the person with 14 items slips in front of you in the line that clearly says 10 items, <laughs> before you make a fool of yourself in a world where 10,000 children starve to death every day. Yesterday, we were walking out of Steak and Shake, and one of the five children that were with me became adam adamant and angry because the milkshake was too thick to get through the straw. And ultimately, she was reduced to tears 
because the birthday cake milkshake, not just milkshake, could not get through the straw. Have you ever heard of first world problems? <laughs> and adults like us, created in the image of God, act like fools over birthday cake milkshakes that can't squeeze through the straw. And you know why we do that? Because we are not mindful. We are not conscious. We wake up and we erupt into our life with our adult child, our intellectual self, our ego leading the way every day. And all day long, we are kicking our foot at the strike of our knee. Contemplative prayer takes you home to the heart of God. And in that living room of your heart, if you will listen and sit and recline there a while, you will find peace, consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, and you will find there a spiritual self guided by the image of God and the breath of the Holy Spirit who is willing and capable to lead your life but will not force itself on you. This is the art of contemplative prayer. This is what I'm finding in contemplative prayer. I'd love to take maybe eight to 10 minutes and hear from some of you your experience of contemplative prayer, your questions, and questions probably would be difficult because I'm certainly not an expert. I remember in school there was always the person teaching Algebra 1 who had a math degree from the University of Missouri at Rolla, and when they gave you the quadratic formula, they understood what the B and the square meant. And then I also remember there was the football coach who made a C in calculus that got thrust in there and also taught Algebra 1. And you could always tell the difference between the person teaching that was a chapter ahead of you and the person who knew the stuff to the depth. I'm the football coach who's a chapter ahead of you on this, so I don't know that I have a lot of answers except to point you to books. But we have microphones. Does anybody have something you'd want to say about these last four weeks, even the time before service, the value of this, the struggle of it, an experience in your life that's quite meaningful? I'd love to just hear from some of you on this. Anybody want to lead the way on this? I'll give a little space here because I know it's always uncomfortable to be the first one. Um, Jason DeMarco. I don't know what he was going to ask. but um, First, I want to say thank you uh, for opening the space for these experiences. Um, I think my question isn't so much about the practice and, and what we're doing here. Um, this community has obviously made some huge decisions this past year, and um, I, it, to me it seems like the first wave was, of course, inclusion, and now it seems like this is the second wave of, of now going deeper into spirituality in and of itself. So I guess my question is more so, as we share with people about you know this community, and we've said this is the best hidden secret here in Nashville, um, more than, and I think what we're asking the questions about um, meditation and all of these things is to get a clear understanding so that we can also then explain what to the community, what does this represent to invite them in? And yeah. are you seeing an exodus of people now because of us 
going here? Does meditation scare people? How do we make it so that they see that this is still Christ-based and that this is... Um, Something that Christ did? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when people ask me what are the differences, what, what do we mean when we say that we're progressive in theological tone, one of the things that I can say that really applies to what you're asking is I, I do think one of the transformations that's happening right now in our consciousness, our understanding of God, is I really do believe that, that we are really beginning to move away from this idea of the external God and the transactional business of religion where we are doing things that invoke the God from the outside to move into our world or into our life. Um, I, I believe that um, there is something that a lot of people have been talking about for the last probably 50 to 60 years, something called Christ consciousness that is bigger than how we have understood Jesus. I think it's what John was speaking of when he said in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and then the Word was made flesh. But I think the fleshly Jesus never intended to be worshipped. I think the fleshly Jesus intended to show us who we were and to be followed. As a matter of fact, he never asked us to worship him. He asked us to follow him. Uh, his was a journey internal uh, and I, I think that frankly we're moving we're moving away from just the sheer veneration of Jesus to actually the revelation of what he actually brought. And I think Jesus said more about who we are than he actually said about who God was. I think Jesus certainly manifests God, but I think Jesus also came to manifest who we are, his brothers and sisters who have the same divine capacity that he was given, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So I I don't know if that's too esoteric, but I think we're moving and we're trying to press people away from this bartering system, this transactional God outside into realizing everything is internal. And the journey is not nearly as far and nearly as harsh and nearly as long as we used to think it was. And, you know, so when you talk about, uh, you know, inclusion, people know us for the inclusion statement. Inclu the inclusion of people because of sexual orientation or gender identity is such a tertiary issue. The bigger issue that's happening here is not the transformation of how we see heterosexual or homosexual people. The bigger issue is how we see God and how we see humanity. I think the stir around <laughs> truly... I think, and, and to be very caricatured and extreme here, the, the way we see homosexuality or bisexuality or heterosexuality, really the real issue and tenderness there is how we see sexuality. And I think the tenderness of how we see sexuality is how we see our bodies. And I think the tenderness and the pain of how we see our bodies is how we see our humanity. And I think the way we see our humanity has everything to do with how we see God. What's happening here is not just a transformation of sexuality. It's a transformation and an understanding of, oh my God, who we have always been. And as we tap into that, civil rights and gender equality and all of that, I think, take... So I really encourage our people not to sell us as the church that made an LGBT statement. That's getting tired, worn out. It's almost embarrassing to continue to talk about it. Do we really have to keep saying that? It's almost embarrassing that it took us this long. Let's move on to a higher vision of God. Dr. Nan Brian.
I've been trying meditation for years, and it never seemed to succeed. And all of a sudden, it's like it hit me. Huh. And the reason, and I was just sitting here thinking about it, and the reason it hit me is because I finally found out who I was. <laughs> I'm the beloved of God. And, and with that, I can come at peace with myself. I'm comfortable sitting in quiet. And it's because I found out who I am. And, and I, I was sharing with some people last night about a verse that Melissa had read in her poem. And she said, I found my name in the treasure. And the treasure is who I am. <laughs> That's the pearl of great price. You sell everything and buy that field. Brian, if anybody doesn't need a microphone, it'll be Brian. He's got the best built-in microphone I've ever heard. Uh, kind of speaking to what... Oh, here you go. You can take that. In relation to what Jason asked... Now I've got to dial back with the microphone. In relation to what Jason talked about, I think um, this movement is is actually pure Christianity, pure religion with um, Jehovah of the Bible. Um, something that I have, it's very refreshing for me that we remember that our spirituality, our faith tradition is rooted in a uh, Middle Eastern mysticism from 5,000 years ago. And it would be very acceptable, you would understand, if you traveled to the Middle East, you would expect a, this kind of, a different kind of worship experience. Or if you travel to the Far East, to a Buddhist shrine or something, um, you know, that's our faith tradition also. And I think it's miraculous um, that, that Christianity does apply in 2016 and is, is as fresh and cutting edge in 2016 as it was then. But it's also very refreshing to understand, yeah, we're rooted in a 5,000-year-old mysticism tradition, and it's okay to tap into that. That's not being unchristian. This is not new. This is us tapping. We're probably getting healed a little bit of our Western modality is what we're, what we're doing, I think. Others want to chime in? Down here, Rob. Right here, Randy. Da Randy, down here. <laughs> Wake up, Randy. Through meditation. Um, it's interesting. We, we are starting to talk about Eastern religions. Uh, I was raised in Catholic Church, um, still recovering, um, and, and then I lost, lost it all uh, for a while. And, and interestingly enough, I had to go to the Eastern religions and work my way through them to get to the point of what you're talking about now as a God within. The, the, the praying to the God out there stopped working and, and that's when things started to open up for me. I've been meditating for years um, and, and I, I would just say a couple things for, for people who are not familiar with meditation. One thing is you might want to think about it as contemplative prayer, which Christians mm -hmm. do. Uh, meditation has some baggage with the word. Yeah. And, and just don't get caught up in that. Uh, if you're going to do contemplative prayer, um, the one thing you need above all else is patience. You can't stop thinking about anything. 
You can't sit down and say, I'm not going to think about anything. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for three seconds. You just can't do it. Um, so you have to find other ways. And, and, and there's many ways, and Thich Nhat Hanh is a, is a master at, at teaching us. But it's about finding something to focus on and, and something that's open and flowing. Often they use a, a, a river. You're looking at the river and, this, and th stuff floats by and if you get a thought, just see it in the river and let it float by, let it go. Don't tell them to go away because they won't. They just won't. They won't and they don't need to. They, they, they may be insightful. Exactly. And, if, and even if they're not, I love the Buddhists call this matre or matri, depending on who's pronouncing it. But mindfulness and not trying to fix it, exactly what you're talking about, Rob, matri a lot of times is defined as unconditional friendliness to self. Oh, how nice is that? <laughs> to be unconditionally friendly to ourself. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? What a, what a w wonderful truth. And yeah, I, I, think, I think not fixing it, but actually recognizing what you're talking about, that the stuff that we try to fix and shut up may be the stuff that we need the most. It's what we have to go through to get to where we want to be. Can't go around it. Thich Nhat Hanh often says about his, his troubles. He has, he has a tea time uh, during the day, and, and if he's having trouble, he sits down and he invites his troubles in. Sets tea for them, <laughs> sits and talks to them, and welcomes them, talks to them, gets to know them, mm -hmm. and then it changes everything. Yeah. Is that what Jesus said when he said, agree with your adversary quickly that it might be well with you? Might have been. Quit fighting. Just agree. It's Tai Chi. Turn it back. Um, and I do want to say this. Talking about going internal is still a limiting way of speaking of this because internal is a metaphor, a spatial metaphor just like external. And I would rather say God is within as opposed to saying God is without. The reality is God is both and neither. God is both metaphorically, but God transcends prepositions and space. And when I say that God is not in me, I am not saying God is less than that. I'm saying God is more than that. This is the God who transcends space and time. So for me, internal is a better metaphor than external, but even that pales in comparison to the reality of the union that I have with God. And so we're not talking about going in somewhere between the pancreas, the liver, and the heart. We're talking about simply going into a place of union and conscious and knowing, though I make my bed in heaven, though I make my bed in hell, though I take the wings of the morning and fly off to the deepest ocean, thou art with me. It is not the inness or the otherness. It is the withness of God that we find. And oh, to be able to practice this enough in spaces of prayer that we actually take that withness into us in life and it impacts the way we treat our spouses, our friends, our coworkers and ourselves. What a lovely practice this can be for us. I do want to be a person of contemplative prayer.